Hi everyone, I'm Coco Moret, lifestyle editor of Tatler Singapore. You're listening to Decoding Brilliance, our new podcast series in partnership with Tiffany and Co. Here, we dive deep into the illuminating realms of jewelry, the social impact of gems, languages of love, masterful craftsmanship, and innovative design, marrying precious moments with precious stones. Tiffany and Co. has long been revered for its timeless yet bold designs that are instantly recognizable. Designers such as Jean Slumberger, Elsa Peretti, and Paloma Picasso have created iconic designs that still withstand the test of time. In this episode, we'll be discussing the art of great design, Tiffany and Co.'s ongoing influence in the worlds of jewelry and design, and how innovation and tradition work hand in hand. Today, we're here with Olivia Lee, who is a Central St. Martin's graduate, a multidisciplinary designer, and the founder and principal designer of Olivia Lee's studio, a studio that's grounded by an industrial design approach. So hi, Olivia. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Coco. Thank you. So Olivia, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do at Olivia Lee's studio? Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, as you mentioned, um, my studio, uh, I dabble in many, many things. My background is in industrial design. But really, that has been my gateway to work on a diverse range of projects, ranging from retail design to scenography for brands like Hermes, um, to furniture design, to speculative projects, uh, art direction, and so much more. So, as a designer, what, in your opinion, separates good design from great design? So, let's maybe start with what good design is. For me... Uh, good design is something that works so well, it almost disappears. It's really the kind of design that is in your daily life. Um, and a lot of the things uh, that you use at home, like utensils, I consider as, as good design. Um, recently, I was in Bangkok and uh, one of my missions on that very short business trip was to hunt down uh, this uh, zebra brand stainless steel soup spoon. And you might see this at an uh, ice kacang store and like a hawker center, but there is something about the thinness of this metal when it cuts through like ice or taohui. It just feels so satisfying. And so, um, you know, zebra spoons are manufactured in Thailand. And so I knew that this was, you know, the mothership where I would go find it. <laughs> so I, in between dinner and a meeting, I kind of like just, you know, dashed out to a supermarket and, and, and hunted it. I finally found, you know, um, where all the utensils were being sold. And I basically carted like 20 boxes back home and gave them out to friends and family because, um, and I think each box maybe cost three Singapore dollars and it had eight spoons inside. And to me, I feel these are really sort of evergreen examples of design because it's, it's obviously made so well and produced so efficiently that it can be so widely available to so many people and touch their lives, you know, every day. So that to me is really like the epitome of good design. Um, so where does great design come in? I think sometimes great design doesn't necessarily check all the boxes. Maybe it's not the most functional um, item, but some it tells a beautiful story or it's just so beautiful you're willing to overlook some of its flaws. And I think the most important thing is that um, someone falls in love with a piece of design. And that to me is what turns it from good to great. And you're almost willing to forgive everything else because the romance between you and that object is too overwhelming. And I think things like this would be, you know, a lot of these iconic 
uh, the furniture, you know, sold by, let's say, Vitra or Herman Miller, you know, beautiful, um, historical. They have a lot of provenance and they're, you know, extremely uh, well-made and are a demonstration of pristine industrial craftsmanship. So that's really, for me, the, the separation of these two. But I, I think both of these roots, whether good or great, are equally successful manifestations of industrial design and they are both equally valid outcomes. As an industrial designer, you talked just now about sort of form and function. You must think about functionality often when you're designing something for Olivia Lee Studio. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance beauty and functionality? So this is another good question. I think it is the perennial challenge for every designer. And I think Every designer has a very different approach and balance or ratio of how they want to engage with the beauty and the function of a, of a product. For me, I, I don't see them as opposing forces. I don't see that in order to have really good function, you somehow need to sacrifice its beauty. And so in a way, my philosophy is one that I need to be able to have my cake and eat it too. <laughs> so I must have something that is able to bridge the harmony of utility and aesthetics. Talking about sort of design being subjective, um, Grace Coddington, the famous stylist and former creative director at large of American Vogue, was behind Tiffany & Co's iconic 2016 campaign, which featured Elle Fanning, Christy Turlington, Lupita Nyong'o. And behind the scenes, in a video that showed behind the scenes, during her photo selection process, when she was choosing which images to um, include in the campaign, she said something along the lines of, I'm not saying I'm right, but it's what I believe. Um, who's to say if I'm right? So as a designer, do you believe that taste is subjective, but good design is universal? I think to be actually really, really fair, both taste as well as good design is subjective because I think everyone has a very different definition and expectation of what is good and what is meaningful and valuable in your life. Um, what I hear when, when she says this is actually almost more a comment of trusting your instincts mm. versus um, logic, where sometimes when you are, you know, in a creative process, sometimes overthinking all the logical reasoning, it doesn't help so much as just trusting your gut feeling. And that leads a lot of creative people, designers and artists to lean into that, that mm -hmm. feeling of right. So every time I receive a brief or a commission or a project, my process always changes. Mm -hmm. It's never the same. You know, depending on, on the ask, you know, whether it is, can you build us a beautiful space? Can you create a beautiful experience for us? You know, can you communicate a wonderful story for us? Um, for me, it's always the starting point of that process, always listening intently to my collaborators and partners and really kind of understanding and, and unpacking what is the question that's like hidden in between the lines and mm. kind of getting to the root of, of the design challenge. And after that, it's kind of going away and then sort of processing all those requirements, but then trying to find um, the spark or the story or the narrative. I think in my practice, I am very compelled to find a story in everything I do because that's in a way how I find meaning and my kind of logic in my process. And I think the beauty of this process that has worked very well for my studio is 
it's not dependent on a particular discipline. I'm in a way medium agnostic. So I'm happy to jump into like a digital uh, kind of outcome mm -hmm. as much as I would love to design a piece, a collection of speculative furniture or to work with craftsmen on you know, new kiln forming techniques for glass. And so it jumps from material exploration to um, you know, creating surprising and innovative new features. And I think my favorite thing in all these projects is somehow planting Easter eggs mm. or sort of embedding little secrets or like layers of design for people to discover. And it means that when you know people uh, engage with my work and and you know my clients when they see the, the the projects that I produce with them, it's a project that you can keep returning to because mm -hmm. there can be things to rediscover about it, and that gives me tremendous joy and satisfaction. Right, that's really interesting to hear because um, I've spoken to some designers who say that say if they're given sort of a more formulaic approach, that sort of helps them feel more creative. Whereas you're sort of saying having that freedom to explore different mediums is what keeps your creativity kind of going. So it's, it's interesting to see how different design minds work. So one example is Elsa Peretti, who was actually, she designed a collection for Tiffany & Co. And she studied architecture. In, in particular, she was a big fan of Gaudi's works. And that kind of really informed her jewelry design. Do you have any sort of connection with her work? Or do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so... Elsa Peretti is a name that I somehow um, came into contact at a very young age, um, which is surprising. And that's really because my first you know, point of contact was seeing my mom put on this otherworldly silver jewelry. It looked like liquid metal around her wrist. Uh, and I, I came to know it as the bone cuff by Elsa Peretti. And it's like, you know, a prized piece of jewelry that my mom, you know, when she was a young working woman, like, saved up for and it's been sort of like something that she always wears at you know fancy occasions and family celebrations and so there's a lot of sentimental attachment to to this piece and I think that really was the first touch point of cap being captivated by this sculptor designer muse named Elsa Peretti. And I remember reading she's lived a really exciting life she was a model a muse a regular at Studio 54 a designer and a philanthropist and um, she spoke a lot about the things that are forbidden will remain with you forever so do you believe that freedom breeds creativity and can someone be creative in a restricted environment i actually think that creatives um, need some constraints sometimes uh it's interesting i think you know creative people are always sort of dancing between uh freedom mm -hmm. and constraint and I think particularly for designers and maybe industrial designers, um, because there's a lot of different components um, and stakeholders and people that we work with in order for a piece of industrial design to you know, be fully actualized, it means that we need to sort of take into consideration many, many things mm -hmm. um, outside of our own sort of creative input, which I think is actually a very healthy sort of like discourse that's very important. I think that sometimes that friction um, yields better results. It's, you know, it's like diamonds, right? It's mm -hmm. under pressure. You kind of produce more spectacular results. And so constraint is sometimes, you know, our worst enemy, but sometimes it's also our best friend. And it's in sort of like these conditions that we actually get the best results. 
I love that answer. Are there any sort of unexpected or seemingly unrelated forms of design that inspire your works? Kind of like how architecture inspires for jewelry. Is there something, some form of art or design that you really kind of turn to when you're looking for inspiration? I'm actually a, a really big sci-fi nerd. So Amazing. one of my sources of inspiration is actually science fiction, whether it is uh, film or books. And why I say that is because I think uh, a designer like myself, like I have half my foot in the past and history and provenance, mm. but the other foot is in the future and I'm dreaming and envisioning what life could be, what the future could be. And I'm very much sort of very, you know, enthusiastic to to trace the development of technology. And there's such there's been like rapid developments in the last, you know, one to two years. Can you give us an example of something you've done that was inspired by sci-fi? Yeah, sure. So I, I mentioned film being a great source of inspiration because um, a lot of science fiction film, actually, it's about a new world. And what fascinates me the most is production design in these science fiction films because it's almost like a projection of what of how we imagine the future could look like. And interestingly enough, you know, some films have gone on to sort of predict existing technology we have today, films like Minority Report. But one of the really um, influential films that I watched a couple of years ago was called Her uh, by Spike Jones. And what I most appreciated about this film was the very kind of warm and humanistic approach to technology and the way it was communicated and described in this like utopia or this future world. And I think it was very influential in the way that I approached um, a collection that I showcased in Milan a couple of years ago called the Athena Collection. And it was my way, it was sort of my thesis statement about how technology can be treated as this very warm and uh, inviting presence rather than this very dystopic and cold, sterile thing, which tends to be the characterization of technology in a lot of futuristic films. Right. I never really understood that because every sort of sci-fi film shows this horrible dystopian future where everything is dark mm. and for whatever reason slimy. Um, <laughs> but it's nice to hear someone who has an optimistic kind of view about what the future could potentially look like. You mentioned before the word zeitgeist and design often reflects the times that we're in. You know, we've had movements like Art Deco, mid-century, that have been really greatly influential to all areas of design, whether that's interiors, architecture, even jewelry. How would you define the era that we're in now? Ooh, this is a good question. So I haven't found the perfect word for the era that we're in, but I feel we are definitely moving into one of the, the, the strangest times in which our relationship with machines particularly artificial intelligence and, and computing is reaching new levels. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the metaverse, about decentralization, about Web3. And it's just very interesting to see how this is going to radically change our mode of living. And so for a brand like Tiffany & Co, how would you say that a brand like that has been successful in defining this sort of generation of design? I think one of the, the, the really interesting pieces of news 
that I actually uh, heard recently was that Tiffany was selling NFTs together with their jewelry. Right. And I thought that was actually very uh, forward thinking. And it was, it was interesting to see a historical brand kind of embrace this very emerging technology mm-hmm. and yeah, take it in stride. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Tiffany & Co. has done a great job of embracing sort of the, you know, what next generation wants in terms of art and design. But also we mentioned, you know, pieces like the Bone Bracelet by Elsa Peretti. They're also really good at sort of having these legacy pieces. As a designer, like what is the sort of secret to creating timeless design that's going to last through generations? I feel like one of the reasons why the, the Elsa Peretti collection is just so timeless is because its aesthetic or visual language feels universal. It feels primordial because it's really trying to... Um, I mean, if it's it has this aesthetic of like molten liquid metal and almost like conforming with the body and it's a celebration of anatomy and perhaps there is some, you know, references to very human, very nature-centric aesthetics. And I think... A lot of very timeless designs, uh, on some level, they they kind of touch on nature in some way or form, or mm. some sort of natural references, or uh, however abstracted they, they may be. And I think that speaks to all of us at a very human intrinsic level. Mm. And it means that it is beyond trends. It isn't based on, you know... Um, fashion per se. It's really about uh, touching on universal cornerstones of beauty and aesthetic. And I think that is why it has allowed a collection like the Parity one to, to to remain current up to the day. You know, that's something yeah. that I, I, I you know, uh, still look to as a really iconic piece of design. Mm. I think beyond jewelry as well, I think just from sort of seeing what's happening in different industries, maybe it's a movement because of what's going on with things like climate change or sort of a desire to feel closer to nature because we're all stuck in, many of us are stuck in cities. You know, you look at hotels and they're all sort of going for very organic materials, a lot of wood, a lot of stone. Fashion sort of become a lot more simplistic, not basic, but just, you know, more wearable for a long time. Do you think just in the sort of design realm, there's this movement to go back to nature now? I feel like we always want to return to nature. Mm. I think that, you know, maybe it's a pendulum swing. On one hand, we we love modernization and industrialization, but at a certain point, I think there's something in us at a very human level that mm. always compels us back towards nature. Mm. I know that, you know, in the last two years, all I dreamt about was going on long hikes yeah. and running away to the countryside <laughs> yeah. and maybe, you know, retiring in a cottage and just having, you know, a gar- like a, a garden where I would like grow my own vegetables. I think a lot of us yearn for this pastoral life and I, I think it is this timeless thing and I think it's a positive outcome that, you know, we all yearn to be back to nature. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something about pendulum swing before, but like, that sort of closest with nature, that sort of organic design can exist with sort of this modernization, this future, because in a way it seems a little bit counterintuitive, you know, modernization and nature, mm. but can they become something that complements each other and coexists in design? Absolutely. I mean, you have these movements uh, in architecture called biophilia, 
or you have design movements like biodesign, where designers and architects are inspired not only by references to nature, you know, from a visual or aesthetic um, language, but really learning from nature. So whether it is sort of studying perhaps, you know, the shells, uh, the scales on an animal or, you know, the structure of a termite colony and learning from nature's ability to self-regulate, you know, with the environment. Because I, I think, you know, the future is one where we really need to um, find equilibrium and harmony with nature. And, it, and therefore, this marriage of design and nature, I think, is the way forward. And I think timeless design works into that as well in terms of sustainability, because I feel like the more we kind of follow trends, things that are of the moment, the more we're creating things that we're going to throw away. So if we have timeless sort of iconic designs like Tiffany and Co do in their jewelry collections, it almost feels like that in, ex- in itself is um, a sustainable practice of production and buying and consuming. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Absolutely. So, um, you know, at home, we have the saying, buy once, buy well. And I think, you know, especially as designers, you know, we are extremely aware of our our involvement and contribution to consumption and to creating things that people desire to buy. And, you know, the way I, I frame my approach is, you know, designing the most beautiful, timeless things means that people won't tire of it and throw it away and we move away from a buy and throw away culture to back to maybe an an older tradition of cherishing and repairing and legacy and passing on passing down and so it's at least for me and with a lot of peers as well it's the spirit of returning to cherishing things do you believe that design let's say hypothetically like 100 years from now from now will be a lot more familiar than we anticipate it to be? Oh, I, I think it's the opposite. Oh, really? I, I mean, I think <laughs> I think in 100 years, I mean, who is to say? I think even in the next 10 to 20 years, mm-hmm. um, the world is going to look so, so weird. I think especially <laughs> if, um, you know, if we, if we see the trajectory of virtual environments or mm-hmm. augmented reality, I think you know, our lives are going to change quite dramatically. Mm-hmm. Perhaps some of us will spend nearly all our time living in a, a virtual environment. I mean, who right. is to say? Um, but I feel, I feel that it's going to be increasingly hard to predict where the future goes. Definitely. I mean, like you said before, there's that pendulum swing between modernization and going back to nature. Mm-hmm. So who knows if we'll ever really fully get to that virtual sort of heavy world. Yeah. And there's always that desire to feel close to the ocean or mountains, to hold stones in our hands, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting. Um, I, I also teach at NUS, so I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the Division of Industrial Design mm-hmm. at NUS. And I'm actually really encouraged by the new generation of young designers. They actually aren't so um, sort of uh, seduced by conversations around the metaverse and actually they are very passionate about nature and climate change and about mindful design and impactful design so I I believe you're right I think it will be this sort of um, calibration between our love for where technology is leading Mm -hmm. us um, but in a way our duty and 
in a way the urgency to also be very mindful about nature and mm-hmm. how do we strike you know a, a balance between the two mm. I'm curious as um, you know uh, as someone who's teaching design to the next generation what are some of the more common or pressing questions that you get from them about design? It's really actually heartening because I see a lot of young students um, who are very passionate about underserved groups. So um, whether they are, uh, uh, maybe they have disabilities or it's the elderly, they are very passionate about using industrial design to engage with these spaces and make life better. And overall, a lot of the students they are very, they are very aware of the world. Yeah, I mean, they are much more woke than I I was when I was their age, mm-hmm. and so they really understand the power of design to create change and make life better. And I think it's just very heartening to know that the new generation um, isn't cynical or isn't um, what you know we might assume. You know of of you know, young people who are on social media, you know, actually these kids, they, they, they prize their privacy. Um, it's very interesting. It's, it's, it's a whole different generation. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, sustainability is so important to them. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, like, how consumption sort of patterns or how consumption habits more will be in the next few years, given that this is such a priority for the next generation. Like, what's going to happen to fast fashion, for example, you know, will there be more of a lean towards saving money and spending them on brands like Tiffany & Co to buy pieces that are more lasting and more cherished? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting. Like, I, I you know, the, the young students that I talk to are also very aware of um, consumption. And I think they, some of them are passionate about projects which are trying to encourage um, people to to preserve, mm-hmm. to repair, to to maintain and take care. And it's, it's nice to see as a generation that is um, uh, choosing a, a different path. And a lot of them actually, the price experience over mm-hmm. uh, possession. Right, yeah. right. Thank you, Olivia. Really enjoyed learning more about your creative process, your perspective on jewelry design, and what the future looks like for the next generation of designers. This has been Decoding Brilliance, a Tatler Singapore podcast in partnership with Tiffany & Co. For more episodes on the illuminating realms of jewelry, the social impact of gems, innovative design, and masterful craftsmanship, please like and subscribe to our channels on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thank you!